Welcome to PTJ Author Interviews. PTJ Editor-in-Chief Alan Jetty talks with authors about the most interesting and sometimes surprising aspects of their work. And now, Dr. Jetty. I want to welcome our listeners to this latest PTJ podcast. This is Alan Jetty, Editor-in-Chief of PTJ, and today I'm very pleased to welcome as my guest Dr. Dawn Magnuson, who's on faculty in the physical therapy program at the University of Colorado in Aurora, Colorado. Dawn, welcome. Great. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Today we're going to talk about a perspective that Dr. Magnuson and her colleagues just published in PTJ. It's entitled Adopting Population Health Frameworks in Physical Therapist Practice, Research, and Education. Don, I really enjoyed it. I'll give our listeners a short summary of the piece, and then we can talk about it. The authors point out in the introduction that efforts among physical therapists to address non-communicable diseases have primarily focused on promoting healthy behaviors among individual clients that they see. And However, they, they talk in their article about the fact that the strongest predictors of chronic disease are in fact tied to where people live, work, learn, and play, our families as well as the communities in which we live. And they, in their article, talk about frameworks for population health that can help us better understand the interrelations between an individual's health as well as their social and physical environment over time and then also inform the development of effective programs and policies to improve the health of both individuals and communities. My first question, Don, is uh, in, in the introduction of your article, you make the point that the healthcare system in the U.S. is evolving from one that focuses on management of disease to one that focuses more on prevention and health promotion. As someone with a public health background, I certainly am in favor of that, but I struggle to see the evidence that such a shift is actually occurring in our country. What do you see as the evidence of that shift? You know, a couple of things uh, stand out in my mind as I reflect on this question. Um, And I think first, you know, if we look kind of at the epidemiology in, you know, kind of our country over the last, you know, 100 years or so, um, our healthcare system is evolving in response to a sort of major epidemiological transition that has occurred over the last century, whereby, and you alluded to this, these chronic, more non-communicable diseases like heart disease, diabetes, uh, have supplanted acute infectious diseases as the leading causes of global mortality and morbidity. And these you know, conditions, as we know, are largely preventable through the promotion of healthy behaviors and healthy communities. Um, but our healthcare system up to this point, uh, which is perceived by many as more of a sick care system, has been, you know, pretty ill-equipped to meet the contemporary needs of society. And, uh, you know, second, the other thing I think of is the triple aim framework. And so when the triple aim framework was introduced in 2007 as a means of addressing these more contemporary needs, you know, the idea of increasing community or population health while simultaneously enhancing the patient care experience and reducing per capita health care costs was considered quite radical. <laughs> um, you know, I, 
would have loved to have been in on some of those conversations um, back in that time. Um, but, you know, now here we are over a decade later, and healthcare organizations across the globe are seeking to achieve the triple aim. And again, one of the, the key pillars of that is, in, you know, improving um, population health. Um, and then finally, I think with the passage of the Affordable Care Act back in 2010, the U.S. healthcare system has certainly seen a number of payment and service delivery reforms uh, as we move away from more traditional fee-for-service models toward alternative payment models and value-based purchasing. Um, and I think, you know, many of these reforms originated in CMS, uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, um, but now we're seeing a number of private insurers and employers really driving innovation in this area. So those are the things that kind of, um, you know, stick out in my mind in terms of some of the evidence around these transitions. Well, you make good points. I think sometimes I get frustrated by what I see as the slow pace of that uh, that shift. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, in your perspective, you draw a really interesting contrast between a more traditional individual approach versus a population approach to physical therapy. Could you talk a little bit about how you see the difference between those two approaches and perspectives? At a very basic level, there are two key differences between individual and population-based approaches to care. Uh, one, the target of the intervention, and two, the goal of the intervention. Um, so imagine, if you will, a bell-shaped curve that represents a population's disease prevalence as a function of its risk. So individual approaches seek to identify individuals uh, with or at high risk for disease, or in our case, oftentimes disability, uh, with the goal then of reducing their individual risk. So moving them from that kind of high risk bucket to the medium or even low risk bucket. So again, that's more of an individual approach. Uh, in contrast, population-based approaches, uh, which were popularized by epidemiologist Jeffrey Rose in the early 90s, seek to target the entire population, be it a neighborhood, a city, or even a well-defined clinical population, with the goal of reducing disease or disability risk across the population. So imagine, you know, our bell curve from before, that entire curve, you know, kind of shifting to the left and risk being reduced uh, across the population. Um, I think a common misperception that many people have is that these approaches are mutually exclusive, you know, that clinicians practice one or the other. Um, but in reality, they're actually very complementary approaches, and evidence suggests that more multifaceted, kind of multi-layered approaches to reducing chronic disease actually prove to be the most effective, you know, those that target both the individual uh, as well as their, you know, community or population. I'm glad you mentioned Jeffrey Rose. I've been a big fan of his, and for listeners who aren't familiar with his work, I would urge you to uh, to Google him. He's really he's written some really interesting stuff explaining the population approach. I I, I really enjoy his uh, his writing. Uh, you gave us a real nice description of the difference. My next question is: How feasible is it for physical therapists to move toward a more population approach, given the way in which we are currently reimbursed for the services that we provide? Sure. And, you know, that's such a great question. And a question we often get is, yeah, you know, kind of conceptually, in an, you know, this sounds like a great idea, but how do we get paid for it? <laughs> and that's such an important question to be asking. Um, and I, you know, this is kind of a hard one. I don't know that population-based approaches, kind of the way that I described it, are that feasible in 
physical therapist practice under more traditional fee-for-service models. However, um, I do think that as we move toward alternative payment models and value-based purchasing that's grounded more in service quality rather than quantity, um, we should see additional reimbursement opportunities arise. And I'm sure many of the listeners, you know, have already seen, you know, some of those changes occurring in their own practice. Um, and hopefully with that, seeing some additional opportunity to uh, become involved in this space. Um, and perhaps relatedly, although this has more to do, I guess, with potential cost savings and reimbursement uh, is the issue of, you know, using electronic health record and claims data to kind of stratify the risk uh, within our clinical populations as a means of enhancing service efficiency. So there have been a number of recent articles that kind of, uh, again, look at, at those aspects, too. But again, not so much related to reimbursement, but certainly some cost savings. You know, it, your comments make me think also that we in the United States can learn a lot from our colleagues in other countries where they they do have more of a population approach. I think that's an area where we have a lot to learn. Definitely. And you know, it, just yeah, if I could, I would just add to that I you know, I think a lot of people are afraid of that change just because, you know, everyone's afraid of change at some level, but I do really view it just given our skills and expertise um as an amazing opportunity to really demonstrate additional value uh in these other areas. So I just wanted to throw that in there too. Sure. In your article, you nicely lay out the main factors that uh, impact on a population's health. And, and you note that they're genetics, individual behavior, health care, and then the social and the physical environment. Uh, from, from your is health care in relation to these other factors? Sure. And I think, you know, this is a really interesting question and something that we don't often think about. Um, and I think many of the listeners may be somewhat surprised to learn that, you know, while healthcare is certainly important, uh, you know, to our individual clients, our communities, um, our populations, uh, deficiencies in healthcare access and use account for a relatively small percentage of a population's health. Um, and, Kind of, you know, we've thrown around this 10% estimate for a long time now, but a recent review of four different estimation methods, uh, which was reported by Robert Kaplan and Arnold Milstein, um, which is published in the Annals of, I think it was Family Medicine in just June of this year, uh, suggests that that 10% estimate kind of holds across these different estimation uh, methods. And so um, it is estimated that about 10% of poor health outcomes in the United States can be attributed to limited health care access and utilization, uh, and by comparison, the influence of social or behavioral factors ranged from, you know, 15% uh, all the way up to 65%, so certainly much higher than the influence of healthcare in each of the four estimation uh, methods described. Uh, and while I think healthcare has historically contributed less than social or behavioral factors, um, I could imagine that its influence will only increase in the future as both insurers and healthcare organizations look to address things like social, behavioral, and environmental kind of factors that are related to health um, and kind of the, you know, those needs of their clients and communities. It does create a nice opportunity for physical therapists if you think about it in relation to some of the other healthcare providers. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, definitely. And I, you know, I have a lot of colleagues around the country who are really starting to pay more attention to, you know, addressing those social, behavioral, environmental needs of their clients. Um, again, if, if our clients and communities aren't able to, to meet their basic needs, you know, it kind of goes back to psychology 101, then it's really difficult for them to engage in, you know, kind of the, the rehabilitation process. And so if we can support that any way we can, you know, then certainly those long-term goals are you know, hopefully will be met um, more efficiently and effectively. And doing so kind of gets to my next um, question, and that is the whole area of primary prevention as well as secondary prevention. You nicely describe the different um, types of prevention. But, again, I come back to thinking, okay, uh, as a listener, how can a therapist get involved more in primary prevention? Sure. Um, well, primary prevention, in case, you know, some of the l listeners aren't familiar, um, primary prevention strategies aim to prevent the onset of disease or disability in susceptible populations. So, for example, um, preventing the development of type 2 diabetes by promoting physical activity and healthy eating in childhood, um, you know, would be an example of more of a primary prevention. Um, and, you know, in our profession, we have a really long tradition of engaging in primary prevention in the areas of, you know, things like fall prevention and and occupational health and workplace wellness. Um, and increasingly, physical therapists are lending their skills and expertise in the design, development, and implementation of more clinic or community-based health promotion programs, again, as a means of reducing the pre prevalence of these you know, chronic, non-communicable diseases. Um, but I think one of the challenges that PTs have in you know, kind of getting involved in primary prevention is just knowing where to start. You know, again, I think it's something where people are interested sure. in, but they just don't know where to start. And so I think I would encourage listeners to um, kind of engage in a couple of different activities. Um, first, I think it's really important to research uh, the interests, needs, and priorities of your organization or your community, kind of whatever your population of interest is. Um, and this can be done, you know, in a number of ways, um, but ideally you'll have an opportunity to meet face-to-face -face with people. Uh, something I hear repeatedly um, from my community members is the importance of simply showing up to community spaces and events. Uh, and, you know, what better way to get to know an organization or a community than showing up and actually talking to people? Um, and this step, you know, is really hard for me because I'm actually quite introverted. <laughs> um, but I knew it would be really important in order to establish relationships uh, with the community members as well as begin to, you know, kind of gain their trust. And so, um, again, just a really critical step is just, you know, getting to know your audience, getting to know your community. Uh, and I think it's worth mentioning here that a number of prevention and health promotion programs that have been developed by PTs were actually born out of conversations with folks at their clinic or or maybe individuals uh, at their school, if they're a school-based therapist, for example. Um, and in talking with people, you know, they started to recognize some patterns in terms of challenges and barriers um, and decided to, you know, work alongside their clients and community members to actually do something about it. So I think that's just where a lot of the ideas and a lot of um, – you know, the energy behind these efforts really start. So that's kind of the first thing. Um, I think secondly, uh, it's really important to identify who's already doing work in your area of interest and reach out to those groups. Um, you know, meet with potential partners, explore opportunities for collaboration. Um, I think many of us are really eager to kind of create our own thing, um, but if we don't have to recreate the wheel, then we shouldn't, <laughs> you know, because there are a lot of great um, programs and opportunities out there if we take the time to kind of explore those. Um, and then I think finally, uh, 
a really important step is to just reflect on the values, priorities, and assets of not only the potential partners and community members, um, but of yourself. And, you know, ideally, at the end of the day, you'll find yourself in a situation where your values and priorities align, you know, with uh, the community members and potential partners, um, but also your strengths and assets will also complement one another. So that's going to be a really, you know, another important part of the puzzle here. You know, as I listen to you talk about this, it strikes me that we could probably learn a lot from what our colleagues who work in the area of pediatrics uh, have been doing much more than on the adult side. You know, I think that's a great point. I'm certainly biased because I'm a pediatric PT. <laughs> but, you know, I think um, – and, and maybe I could argue to, you know, those individuals who do a lot of um, kind of home-based or home health um, services because, yeah. you know, you're, you're in the home environment. You're kind of seeing, you know, what's happening, what, you know, um, experiences the families are having in terms of social stressors or financial stressors or, you know, if they're, you know, violence or just all these other factors that influence our health, you know, you see that kind of firsthand, and that's actually kind of what propelled me to, you know, um, kind of go down the line of population health was based on a lot of the experiences that I had seen firsthand uh, as a clinician. So I think you're exactly right in terms of, again, just, you know, really um, putting yourself in position to really understand, you know, the experiences that our, our clients and families are, are having. You know, I was very pleased to see that you um, – discuss the whole topic of health health uh, disparities in our population, which is a huge issue. Uh, could you share a little bit with our listeners some thoughts about what physical therapists can actually do to try to help reduce the disparities uh, across our population? How long do we have on this phone call? <laughs> yeah. Just yeah, um, briefly. I only say that. <laughs> I joke because um, so this question is actually really near and dear to my heart as much as my research um, seeks to reduce disparities in children's health outcomes. So I could go on about this all day, but <laughs> I'll try to keep it brief and, again, um, related kind of more to actionable uh, steps that, that, you know, PTs can take. Um, so I think, let's see, I think a critical first step is really identifying where disparities exist, um, you know, understanding and recognizing you know, gosh, there are disparities, you know, where do these things exist in my clinical population, in my community, in my neighborhood, you know, whatever our population is. Um, and this can be accomplished by analyzing things like electronic health record data, claims data, uh, local, state, or national surveys. There are a variety of ways to kind of understand that from a quantitative um, kind of perspective. Um, <laughs> but that, of course, makes me think of Dr. Terry Nordstrom's um, 2019 Sarah lecture, and he said, uh, uniqueness fades in the objective classification of people. So I always, that, you know, sentence, that one piece always stands out yeah. in my mind if I get <laughs> too carried away with thinking about, you know, ex examining things and exploring things quantitatively. Um, and so we have to kind of balance that with a more qualitative approach and, you know, the need to engage, again, our clients and our community members in conversations about their experiences and really listen to their stories. Um, you know, I find it's amazing what we can learn when we simply take the time to listen to other people. Um, you know, so that I think would be kind of step one. Um, relatedly, I do think it's important to identify the root causes of those disparities as well using uh, similar methods. Um, you know, we're often quick to attribute such differences or disparities to personal choice. But I think when it comes 
down to it, you know, if our choices are limited by structural forces, so be they social, economic, or political conditions, you know, how much choice do we really have? Um, moreover, there's a really strong physiological connection between poor long-term health outcomes and toxic stress that can accumulate as a result of chronic exposures to things like discrimination, violence, economic instability, you know, kind of you name it. Um, and so in response to this and, like, the increasing evidence around this, a number of medical school programs across the country are actually beginning to integrate structural competencies uh, into their, their curricula. And Dr. Nordstrom also touched on the integration uh, of such competencies uh, in PT education as a means of fostering um, what he dubbed. And, again, I just love his words, but he talked about, um, you know, fostering enlightened change agents capable of truly transforming society. And I just love that because, again, it's, you know, increasing our, our awareness, but also, you know, our drive and determination to address some of these root causes as well. Um, and so while we may not have the skills to directly address, you know, the social, economic, or political conditions that influence health, um, we certainly have the ability to identify those things, but also advocate for and support policies uh, that actually promote the health of our clients and communities. Um, and I think it's also worth mentioning that, you know, some clinics and health organizations uh, are implementing social screeners within their clinical workflow to help identify, um, you know, some of these disparities. Um, but I would encourage listeners, you know, before kind of engaging <laughs> in that sort of endeavor and collecting that information, um, I would strongly encourage clinicians to carefully weigh the potential benefits of screening uh, and collecting that information uh, with potential consequences um, and ensuring that referral networks and resources are in place to address any needs that emerge. Um, you know, moreover, it's really important to recognize that clients may not wish to share such sensitive information, you know, especially if it's related to their financial or their social situation. And so clinicians need to recognize and understand that, um, you know, emission of need on a screener or intake form is certainly not the absence of need. Um, and, of course, central to all of these efforts uh, on the part of therapists to address health disparities is, you know, again, I come back to it, but the engagement of clients and community members and other stakeholders to really identify, uh, you know, their values, priorities, uh, needs, as well as their assets, too. So I should probably stop it there. <laughs> No, I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to talk about uh, your article. I was really pleased to see it um, submitted to PTJ. Uh, your, your passion for your work really comes through, uh, and I have enjoyed the opportunity to talk about it. And I look forward, uh, Dr. Magnuson, to having you and your colleagues send additional work to PTJ in the future. Well, we thank would you. love that too. Yeah, thank you so much.